Um, so tonight we have two Bible readings, and the first one is from Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, and then the second reading is from Matthew seven twenty four to 29. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Um, good evening, I'm Steve, but the other Steve. I believe Steve Young's watching on that phone, so we do need to behave ourselves. But if anything breaks, it's not my fault. Um, as we were having the passage read, I did look around, I noticed almost everyone had a Bible open, and that's a good thing, because we're looking across three chapters in Matthew, and you will need a Bible if you're going to make the most of it. So you're saying turn it up, bring it closer to me. How's that? Ooh! Has that deeper sound to it? That's nice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you so much that it's in English in front of us. Lord, we pray that as we look at it tonight, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. We pray that you would be transforming and renewing our minds, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody who's anybody wants to live the good life. We want to live a fulfilled life. We want to live a life where we have everything that we need and maybe a little bit more. We want to live a life where we have loads of friends and the kind of friends that you can get on with, they don't fight with you. We want to have the kind of life where we're popular and where we're loved. Everybody wants to live the good life. And all around us on the television, from our friends, in our society, everything around us is telling us what the good life is, what it should look like what you should do, what you should have, who you should be. And it's always been that way. Everybody, all through history, has had their idea of what the good life would be. 
In the days when um, Jesus walked around in Galilee, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, they showed and they told people what the good life was like for a good Jew. They taught lots of different rules and laws, told people how they should be living, set the expectations, the traditions, the cultures, the culture that um, people should be living up to. And it was assumed, I reckon, that if you followed the teaching of the, uh, of the Jewish leaders, if you chased after the righteousness of the Pharisees, then surely God would shower you with blessing and you'd be part of the family of God, included in God's kingdom. You'd have the good life. And then Jesus turned up. And Jesus turned the little world upside down or turned it the right way up. So when you go back to the genealogy in Matthew, which you went through a few weeks ago, you look at the genealogy, you see how it's structured and it mentions Abraham, the father of every Israelite, and then it mentions David. It's saying Jesus is a certified Jew. He comes in the line of David, a descendant of Abraham. But Jesus called on his fellow Jews, including the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, called on them to turn back to God, to repent to God. He called on people who thought they didn't need to repent of anything, called on them to change, called on people who thought they had a shoe-in in the, to the good life and told them they had to change because the reality is the good life doesn't even start until you start living for God. The good life only begins when you give up everything to follow King Jesus. That's when you really start living. And so last week... When Steve took you through chapter 4, you would have seen chapter 4, verse 17, where it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's the same message that John the Presbyterian preached. That's what Reich told us when we looked at chapter 3. The kingdom of heaven is here. The good life that God has planned, it's upon us. So it's time to repent. It's time to drop everything and turn back to God. The Jews thought they had all that already. And here's Jesus saying it's time to repent, to turn back to God. Um, look back at chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, and you'll see that what John preached was exactly the same message. But look what he said to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Have a look at 3, verse 7. It's fairly confronting. And 3, verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the people who knew everything, and saying, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do you think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father? I tell you, out of these stones, God will raise up children of Abraham. Um, what John and Jesus preached holds true for us today as well. If you don't put God first, then you're not really living. You don't really have the good life. Um, last week, you would have also seen from chapter 4, verse 18 and following, you would have seen Jesus calling the fishermen, his first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James and John, they responded to Jesus by dropping everything, even leaving their dad in a boat. They gave up everything to follow Jesus. Then just have a glance. So the message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Drop everything, come follow me. And then you look at the, the verses that were read in chapter 5, verse 3, the Beatitudes, the blessed are statements. Look at verse 3, for example. Blessed are the poor in, in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You keep reading through these statements. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it switches. It's yours. This is Jesus talking to his disciples saying, you've already got it. You're in the kingdom of heaven. Um, 5 verse 3 is addressed to the disciples who have repented. 
like the fishermen and anybody else who turned their um, turned back to God and started following Jesus. When you put Jesus first, you're included in the kingdom of heaven. You have all this. It's yours. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7 helps us understand exactly what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven, to have all this, to have the good life. So, um, a few basic things. Why is this part of the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount? And this is where it's really not very complicated. Have a look at 5 verse 1 and look where Jesus is preaching. So it says in 5 verse 1, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. They used to sit down to, to teach. I'm not sure that it would have been a monologue like this. There might have been some interaction happening. Um, but his disciples came to him in verse 1 and then he began to teach them. So he spoke to them. He gave a sermon to them on the side of a mountain. And so it gets called the Sermon on the Mount. Rocket science. Um, if you're an engineer and you don't want to read books, what you do is you go to the, f the front and the end, the top and the tail, you get a feel for what you think might be in the middle. Job done. So let's do that. You go to the other end of the Sermon on the Mount passage, you go ahead to chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. And then 8, verse 1, when Jesus came down from the mountainside. There it is, the Sermon on the Mount, just finished. So we're looking across three chapters. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples whom he's called to repent, to drop everything and follow him. And this block of teaching is Jesus saying, this is what it means to be part of my kingdom, to be living for me. This is what it will be like. And you'll see he's teaching his disciples in the hearing of the crowds. As he kind of winds up his sermon, if you have a look at chapter 7, verse 24, he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Here's Jesus on the mountainside saying, put what I teach you into practice and you'll be building on a solid foundation. You'll have the, the good life. You'll have the real life, lasting life. And as we read this as Christians... It reflects straight through to us. We're like the disciples that Jesus spoke to on the mountainside. As a Christian, you've given up everything to live for King Jesus. And here's Jesus saying, this is what it's like to be in my kingdom. Um, build your life on my word. There's something else to notice when you're looking at the bookends of the Sermon on the Mount. So we're just doing the kind of the, the putting the, the context of this. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount and the bookends, something else to notice, and that is that the Sermon on the Mount, yes, it was for the followers of Jesus. It was for the disciples. But there were other people listening in. Jesus spoke to the disciples in front of the crowds in 5 verse 1. And then when you look at um, 7 verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. So if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, still listen hard. Take to heart what you see in this part of the Bible because Jesus' words are amazing. And if you are a follower of Jesus... Keep this in mind, Jesus is teaching his disciples in the hearing of people that don't believe. That's a pretty good reason to bring your friends to church, isn't it? So they can hear you being taught how to live as a Christian, and maybe they might catch on and understand what it is to be a Christian. So there's the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. We've kind of gone top and tail, got a feel for the shape of three chapters. And morning church, you know, that's a sermon and a half, but here you do it in five minutes because this is night church. What I want to do now is kind of pull out some key verses, which will give you a feel for the shape of this teaching from Jesus. 
The first one is 5 verse 16. So you look at 5 verse 16, it says, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what Jesus said to his disciples, to the the Christians, the follower of Jesus. Jesus wants his disciples to be like light cutting into darkness. That doesn't work if you don't, you know, in some way stand out from the world around you. He wants them to be that distinctive, that different, that they stand out like light in darkness. 5 verse 16, it may well be the topic sentence of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's the thing that kind of sits behind everything else. Jesus wants his disciples to stand out like that so that they'll catch others. They'll be fishers of men or fishers of people, that kind of idea. They're not to stand out to bring attention to themselves. If you look at verse 16, the goal is to bring glory to your Father in heaven. And I take it that means as others join you in living for Jesus. So there's implications for us in living the Christian life as we look through the Sermon on the Mount. The first one is, as we live a Christian life, we want to live a life that makes the gospel attractive, makes other people want to see Jesus too, makes us stand out like light in darkness, or as a lecturer at college once said, stand out like the eyes on a snail. That's pretty cool, that picture. Um, We're told to shine, and then thinking about this a bit more, this is what Jesus himself did. So if you go back into chapter 4, from I think it was a passage from last week, 4 verse 16, Matthew quotes Isaiah. He's, Jesus is portrayed as light shining in the darkness, the same sort of idea, like a beacon of hope in the land of the shadow of death. And you see how similar that is to the way that he wants his disciples to live, like shining lights in darkness. Um, so the way Jesus shines his light is by preaching, And his message in 4 verse 17 is repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And in 4 verse 18 we see people responding to the message as they repent and turn back to God and start following Jesus. And then you look at verse 19, he says, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. He wants to make them fishers of people or fishers of men was the old language. He wants them to shine in such a way that they catch others and draw them in. And then in order to appreciate this verse a little bit more, 5 verse 16, we're just zooming in on 5 verse 16, thinking about it. In order to appreciate it, you've got to look back up at what was read before it, so the Beatitudes, those blessed are statements. Um, There's a few things to notice when you look at those statements. I've pointed one out already. It kind of switches partway through. It's kind of talking in the third person, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are you. It's actually talking about them the whole way through. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're blessed. It's just that you are these strange people. You're the poor, the meek, and so on. There's another thing to notice too. There's a now and a yet to come in these blessed statements, blessed are statements. Um, In verse 3, there's is. In verse 10, there's is. Um, They have it now. It's already theirs. They're already counted in the kingdom. But then in 4 to 9, they look forward. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is, I reckon, describing the life of a Christian. You have so much now, and yet there's even more to look forward to. You already have it all, but there's even more to come. Um, The other thing to notice is as you trace each of the qualities that it says you should be or should have, I reckon you'll find them in the Old Testament. 
the Old Testament expectations and hopes. So I think Jesus is saying, as a follower of Jesus, the expected kingdom of heaven, the expected kingdom of God of the Old Testament, everything they've looked forward to, it's here, and you're now going to enjoy it as you follow me. You belong to the kingdom. And so these beatitudes, I think they describe followers of Jesus or Christians. They describe the good life, the life in the kingdom of heaven. But then you look at it a bit more closely and you see where to be poor in spirit. We don't fear mourning. We're to be meek. We're to show mercy. We're to be peacemakers. Verse 11, we rejoice in persecution. You put all this together and we're misfits, aren't we? We don't belong in this world. Our home is in heaven with God. And while we wait for Jesus to return, we stand out awkwardly because we don't belong here. Um, We will cause ourselves to be persecuted as we stand out to be different. People will misunderstand us. People will say horrible things about us. Um, You're the kind of person who, when everyone else is about to cross the road, you wait for the green man. You're just awkward because to you it matters what you do before God not what you do before others. Um, You're the kind of person who, when you put your first tax return in, you'll make sure that you do it properly so you're not cheating the government. You won't take those shortcuts. You're the kind of person who will annoy people by pointing out that actually it's wrong to be talking about someone behind their back. Just because we care. We're living for God. That's the standard that we're living to. So for those with eyes to see it, they'll recognise that you're actually really living. You understand what real life is. You are enjoying the good life, and they too will fall on their knees before... Um, God and praise our Father in heaven. So that's the first verse, 5 verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It kind of opens up the Sermon on the Mount, shows you everything that's coming. Next verse is 5 verse 48. Um, Look at how different we're expected to be. Look at the standard there, 5 verse 48. Be perfect. Don't be mediocre. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a fairly big ask. It's a high target. Such a high target that you kind of want to qualify it a bit, don't you? Soften it up. Point out, we're not actually perfect. It's Jesus that you want it because it just feels too high, too big. It's a high target, but it's what God always wanted. He hasn't changed his mind. When you look through the Old Testament, we looked at Leviticus recently. In the Old Testament, they're told, be holy because I am holy. It's the same thing, isn't it? God's God. He has high standards. He expects us, if we're going to be his people, to be like him, to be perfect, just as our Father in heaven is perfect. We want to add the qualifications. We want to say, yes, but actually we're sinners. Um, We're dependent upon God's grace. Yes, all that's true. But as you're adding the qualifications, just be careful that you're not lowering the bar and saying, well, it's all right to whatever. Because it's not. We're meant to aim for perfect. Um, There is a helpful thing to point out here, and that's the second half of the verse, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, the word behind it, perfect, is complete and full and, and all those things but it's as your heavenly father is perfect. We want to be like our father in heaven. It's the family likeness. There's the relationship that comes in here. So it's not about law keeping, and you'll see that as we go a bit deeper. It's about being like God. That's what you're aiming at. And you think about it. The fact is, when you become a Christian, you give up everything to follow Jesus. 
Everything you live for is Jesus. And Jesus wants us to be perfect because our Heavenly Father is perfect. Um, when you come up against verses like 5 verse 48 and they just feel too hard, don't you know, justify them down and weaken them. Just keep letting it sit there and try to understand it a bit more. And as you look at the context, it starts to make a bit more sense. So 5 verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Then you read the context. That's actually the summary of an argument in the passage. Um, I don't even think I've followed my slides properly. Don't tell Steve Young. I don't even have it here. Oh, too bad. Here it is. This is the the passage. So 5 verse 16 gives you this this theme, be standout Christians. So you're going to have to trust me on this. 5 verse 16 gives you the theme of standing out as as, um, being standout Christians. Then 5 verse 17 to 20 is an argument. An argument for maximum obedience, not minimum compliance. That's where the work happens. 5 verse 48 summarises those verses, summarises 17 to 20. Then verses 21 to 47 just gives you concrete examples. It goes, the law says this, but I say this. So they're just examples of the point that's being made in verses 17 to 20. Um, Then verses 21, sorry, yeah, that's 21 to 47, and then 48 gives you the summary. What I'm saying is be perfect because God is perfect. So in other words, if you can understand verses 17 to 20, You've understood 5 verse 48, the tricky verse. Is that clear enough without it on the screen? I hope so. So zoom in on verses 17 to 20, and I think what you see there is Jesus saying, as a follower of me, you're after maximum obedience or maximum devotion, not minimum compliance. Um, In the Beatitudes, one of the qualities of the people who possess the kingdom of heaven, it's there in verse 6, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll want to do what's right, want to be right. And verses 17 to 20 of chapter 5 is Jesus defining that righteousness, what it means. The righteousness we're to hunger for and to thirst for, it's a different kind of righteousness to what the Pharisees and Sadducees were teaching. It's a different kind of righteousness to what our world aims for and what our world knows. And you see the difference in verse 20. So verse 20 says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be more righteous than the Sadducees and the Pharisees. For us, the Sadducees, Pharisees, they're the bad guys. We know that because they turn, Jesus calls them hypocrites. But at this point... In Matthew's Gospel, just put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a minute because that's who Jesus is speaking to. The Pharisees are the people who know the Bible back to front. They're the people who, who tell you how you should be living for God. They're the people that others look up to. They know what righteousness is. And Jesus is saying, no, your righteousness has to surpass theirs. Um, and if you think about their righteousness, the Pharisees and Sadducees, it's this rule-keeping righteousness, isn't it? do this, you do that, and God will be pleased with you. But in verse 20, Jesus is saying the righteousness we're to strive and hunger for is not what they were aiming at, the Pharisees. They were after rule-keeping. We're not trying to keep rules. We're trying to please God, live for him. And as you read on through Matthew's Gospel, you'll see how the Pharisees, they've added so many rules, they actually undermine what God wants. The example given deeper in to Matthew is um, the, the Pharisees saying, if you say something's devoted to God, you don't have to give it to your parents, but God wanted you to honour your parents. They, they, their rule kind of undercuts what God wants. 
So our righteousness is to surpass rule-keeping because we want to be like our Father in heaven. We want to be devoted to living for him. Our desire is to please God. It's not about keeping rules. It's about this family likeness. So maximum devotion is what you're aiming for. Um, I'm not sure how to make that a little bit clearer, but I think you know what it's like when you're doing what you do just to, to pacify someone, to keep them happy, to keep your parents happy. They've asked you to wash the dishes, so you wash the dishes. That's different to seeing the, what dishes need doing and doing them before you're asked. There's a kind of a, a desire to please your parents that's different to rule-keeping. 5 verse 48 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Our desire is to please God. It's not about rules. It's about the family likeness. Um, back to verses 17 to 20. Does that mean we can do away with the rules? Chuck out the Old Testament because we don't need to follow those rules anymore? No, because have a look at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That doesn't sound like cutting the law out, does it? Doing away with it. And look at verse 18. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. There's, around Christian circles, there is this idea that in the Old Testament, God gave rules to people to follow. They couldn't follow them, so he changed the way things work, sent Jesus, and now you don't have to follow the rules. But that's not it. You look at this, and there's nothing that's taken out. It's just that Jesus completes and fulfills all the rules and all the law. Um, what Jesus is saying is God's still working to plan A. Nothing's changed. Um, nothing's been taken out of the law. And so as you look at verses 17 to 19, Jesus is saying, as followers of Jesus, we'll see the fulfilment of the law in him and we'll follow after him. We'll want to be like Christ. So we look at the rules in the Old Testament and we think, what does that help me? How does that help me understand who Jesus is and what it means to please God? I want to do that because God's law is written on your heart. There's another, I mean, for Morning Church, that's probably three sermons. Um, the law and the prophets, they all point to Jesus. Um, so they're properly obeyed by conforming to Jesus' teaching, what he says. Because verse 20, we don't want to be legalistic minimalists. Um, we want to maximise our obedience and our devotion to King Jesus. That's Jesus is saying the righteousness we're to hunger for is of a completely different order to the rule-keeping of the Pharisees. A bit like Jeremiah 31, I'll put my law on your minds Write it on your hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. So verses 21 to 47, Jesus then gives concrete examples of how this works. And this is where all the application comes for us. So if you look at verse 21, you've heard it that it was said um, to the people long ago, and he's talking about the law in the Old Testament, do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister, would be subject to judgment. Do you get it? Old Testament, if you want to be a Pharisee and just keep those rules, well, you're worrying about not murdering someone. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you actually don't even want to hate someone. You don't want to murder them in your heart even. Don't be satisfied with not murdering. Instead, work on not being angry. Remember, we're aiming at 5 verse 48, perfection. 
being like our Father in heaven, the family likeness. Um, then he takes on, a bit deeper in, he takes on adultery and divorce. He talks about making promises, retaliation and so on. But have a look at verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, you know it's wrong to commit, commit adultery. So as a Christian, don't even go there with your mind. See how the standard is maximum, not minimum? Um, I think this one deserves a little bit more attention because what the Bible doesn't say is that when you become a Christian, all of a sudden you can't be tempted. It doesn't say that, does it? This is not saying that when you become a Christian, God changes your body so you can no longer be aroused. There's something broken in there. So that's not what it's saying. No, if your body's working fine, then for men, you see a beautiful woman, it, things happen in your body because that's the way they should work. And so for us, as men, the lesson is take great care what you let your eyes see. If you want to be living for God, you're maximising your obedience to him, wanting to be like him, and so you watch what your eyes see. Filter what your eyes see. I'm told that for ladies, um, this whole relationship thing is a little bit different. It's more about um, someone being able to communicate with you and the, the, the lights being dim or whatever else it might be. Take care of those things. Don't read those trashy novels, watch that rubbish shows. Fill your minds with these weird and strange ideas about relationships that are fake. Um, we're not being told that as Christians we'll no longer be sexually responsive. We're being told to keep that whole context in marriage. That's where it's meant to be. Um, to flirt outside of the context of marriage is the same as committing adultery. It's on that same slippery path, isn't it? In fact, I wonder whether flirting is exactly the example that's there in verse 28. It says, um, if you want to be um, more literal with the translation, it might go like this. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman so that she lasts has committed adultery with her in his heart. That sounds like flirting to me, if you put it that way. So it's been said, don't commit adultery. Jesus says, don't even go there with your eyes. In fact, he says in verse 29, don't run the risk. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's fairly drastic, isn't it? It's kind of an example of hyperbole saying, this is how desperate it is. Pluck it out. Stop it happening. Um, and at morning church, I told the joke about a friend who I saw at uni with a Band-Aid all over his arm. And I asked him what happened. He said, well, it's causing me to sin. I just decided to give it a warning. It's a bit funny, but... That's, Jesus is trying to make this as clear as possible for you. It's that important. Um, before you go pulling your eye out, just come and talk to one of the elders, I think. It might be a wise idea. But our obedience is to be maximum. Our devotion is to be maximum. We're not after minimum compliance. And so that's the second verse to show you, and now we start to speed up. So that was 15, uh, 5 verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's not about law-keeping. It's about wanting to be like God in character. So I've shown you 5 verse 16, 5 verse 48. As followers of Jesus, 5 verse 16, we're to stand out so that we bring glory to God the Father and draw others into wanting to live for him. 5 verse 48, we're to be perfect because our Heavenly Father is perfect. I just feel like before going further, I've got to remind us that as you consider trying to be perfect, yes, you do need to qualify it. We're only perfect through what Jesus has done. 
for us on the cross, his death for us. But I think the point here is don't be content with sin in your life. Keep repenting, keep turning back to God. We've given up everything to live for Jesus, and we keep doing that. Um, in the area of, of obedience, we don't want to be legalists. We don't want to be minimal, minimalists. We want to be maximalists. The next verse to show you is 6 verse 1, and we'll speed up now. In 6 verse 1, what you see is, I think, that motives matter. So as you seek to stand out, as you seek to be perfect, make sure that you're not doing it for the sake of what other people might think of you. And for us in Christian circles, that's huge. It's very easy to think about what others are thinking of you and let that control your behaviour. But our concern should be what God thinks. So 6 verse 1 goes, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So as followers of Jesus, we strive for, for perfection, to be like Jesus. Um, we act in a righteous way, but we do that because we're accountable to God, not because we want to earn favour with each other or impress one another. Um, God will reward. Remember the Beatitudes? Remember 5 verse 6? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. God will reward. And so our verse is 6 verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Um, from 6 verse 1, Jesus then picks on three examples. He picks on prayer and giving alms or giving to the needy um, and fasting. He picks on prayer, giving and fasting. I think the reason he picks on those three is because they were things which the Jews thought of as religious works. I mean, when you think about um, the Pharisee when he's praying, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee thanks God he's not, so he's praying, not like the tax collector, he gives, and it's the same sort of idea, those three things of prayer, giving, and fasting. So in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus holds up these religious practices and says, 6 verse 1, be careful not to practice your, your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Remember back in 5 verse 20, our righteousness is to surpass that of, of the Pharisees? Um, one way that it will is if we're working to please God, not others. It makes sense. Then as you look at 6 verses 1 to 18, you'll see those three things mentioned and there's this pattern in the passage. It goes 2, verse four, uh, two to 4, talking about giving, 5 to 6, talking about prayer. Jump over 7 to 15, because it kind of goes into an extended bit on prayer. And then 16 to 18, talking about fasting again. And you look across, each of them has this same, this same pattern. It says, when you give or when you pray or when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. And then it inserts the reason. And then it goes, I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full, explains that. And then it goes, but when you give or pray or fast, do it like this. And then it says, for your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's three examples, same pattern. It loops through. There's two things that get lost in the translation, so I'll just point them out to you. The first thing is, Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. And if you get behind the word for hypocrite, it's the idea of pretending, it's the idea of acting out. And so don't be people who act out, who do the facade do the outward thing for, for kind of, you know, favour, for reward from others around you. Don't be like that. So that's the first thing to, to point out in the translation. The contrast is, as Jesus' disciples, what we do, we do in secret. 
We're not doing it in front of people to impress. We do it in secret. We do it because we're doing it for God. Second thing is, that gets lost in translation is this idea of rewards. There's actually two words being used. So 6 verse 1 goes, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will, not, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. We start thinking of you know, doing things in order to get reward. It gets you a bit skewed. There's actually two words for reward in the passage. Um, the reward that the hypocrites act for, the word behind that reward is, is like wages. You earn it. But the word for us as Christians, that, um, the reward God gives, it's something God provides. There's a difference. It's not earned. It's given. Um, the same word is used in verse 33, and you wouldn't pick it in our English. So if you look back at 5 verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. The word reward is hidden in that last part. Fulfill to the Lord, the vows you have made. The reward you get as a Christian, the reward God gives, it's God looking after you. It's God taking care of you, giving you what's best, which is very different to you earning something. I think it's different anyway. Um, you've got the Beatitudes behind it. Your thirst for righteousness and God will, you will be filled. It's that sort of God will take care of you type reward. So those, when you factor in those two translation things that get lost, as followers of Jesus, we give up everything to live for Jesus, back in chapter 4. We seek to build our lives on Jesus and his word in chapter 7, and that means in 15 verse 6, we will seek to stand out, to be attractive as Christians. We'll aim for perfection in 5 verse 48, and we'll guard our motives in 6 verse 1. There's one more verse to show you, and this will be really quick because this is stealing from a passage that Tom will take us through in two weeks' time. So 6 verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, as followers of Jesus, our home is with Jesus in heaven, around God. Our home is where our heart should be. And when you look at verses 19 to 23, there's this reminder of where our home is, with God in heaven. Um, and then the second half of the passage, 26... 25 to 34, we're being told, don't, if, you, if you remember where your heart is, where your home is, you won't have a, have, a, have a worry in the world. But Tom will take you through those verses again in a few weeks. I think it's a lot like what uh, Paul says in Colossians 3. So I'll read you from Colossians 3, verse 1. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. It's this idea of your life, what you're living for, is hidden, secure, with Christ in God. That's what you're looking to. And then Paul goes on, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. It's this idea of looking to where your, your, your home is, with, with God in heaven and living for that. So what we've done is, um, I mean, there's more in the Sermon on the Mount, but I've maxed out, and I, you might have too. Um, I hope what you've got is a solid foundation to keep reading the rest and putting it into place, but come back to where we started, this idea of the good life, the fulfilled life, the complete life. As you look through the Sermon on the Mount, you see what it is, don't you? 
It starts by repenting and putting your trust in Jesus, putting God first. And as you live to please him, everything else falls into place. And you know that God will look after you. So as you come back to where we started, the question for us is, are we living the good life? Are we living for Jesus? Have you repented? Are you living for Jesus in everything? Does the way that you live bring glory to God and point others to Jesus? Are you aiming at being like Christ? Or are you kind of blending in with everyone around you, looking the same so no one will ever know? I'm going to pray that we would be standing out like lights in darkness, um, and then I'll leave Tom to bring us back to the end of this passage in a couple of weeks' time. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, please would you keep speaking your truth into our hearts and our lives. Lord, we pray that we would be an encouragement to each other as we think these things through. Lord, please keep teaching us to repent, to give up everything to live for Jesus. Please keep teaching us to live for your kingdom. We praise you for all that you are, for all that you've done. We thank you for your incredible faithfulness and your amazing love and mercy that we see in Jesus. And we ask that you would use us to cause others to want to praise you as well. And we ask that you would help us to help each other to live distinctive lives, lives that stand out as being different to the world around us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.